Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Hello, everybody. Hiya, thank you for being here. It's lovely to see you, and uh, we're on our third lab. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. It's been a bit stretching, and, uh, you know, we've been looking at stuff that maybe you haven't been um, uh, sort of introduced to before, but that's what we're about, isn't it? Yeah? Learning and, uh, you know, being willing to dig deeper. We used to call it in deep, but maybe we're going really in deep now. So I'm going to take tonight and um, he's going to pick up on, is the God of the Old Testament the God of Jesus? Oh, it's a massive question that, isn't it? For those who weren't in last week, I'll just give you a um, sort of a, a little recap. We touched on this bit here, how the Eloists, uh, their writing up of um, things were quite different from everybody else. And um, you can have a listen online but it was quite an interesting one. Um, next time I speak, I'm going to look at the Yahwis. Can you see how there's a gap here? It was spelt wrong, but it's Yahwis. We're going to look at that, but actually this might be good tonight because what I'm going to bring might help, you know, just focus us in uh, when we come to talk about that uh, next time. So without further ado, let's have Anth talk about, this is a biggie, I mean, for me. I just think this is really big because this is what a lot of people struggle with, with the God of the Old Testament. And is that actually the God of Jesus? And maybe we can just throw some light onto that tonight. Now, remember, anything that we say is open for thinking about. Don't just sort of take it away and say, Anth said or Chris said. This is about, we, we, you know, bringing things into a big pot, like you make a big pot of soup and, uh, you know, you put things into the pot and then, you know, the, the result you get later is, can, you know, can be very different, can't it? Um, so, you know, be very open. Let's not get to the point where we say, oh, hang on a minute, that's not what I've heard before. And therefore, hang on, you know, you're touching my stuff and we get all very sensitive about it. Let's be open because we want to grow and nothing grows out of concrete. Always remember that. You have to have a very um, uh, soft, uh, you know, sandy, soily, as opposed to clay and cement in order that anything can grow. So just be open tonight and uh, we'll let Anth take it from here. Um, just let's say that anybody who's got any questions, please put them down because possibly next week I've, I've had like four that's all I've had over the last two weeks, four questions, which we will answer next week. But if you've got any more tonight, please write them down and then we'll hopefully cover them next week. So this is your opportunity. All right? Yeah. Okay, come on, Anth. Great stuff. Awesome. Now, all right, let's just quickly pray. Father, we're praying not because we uh, sort of want to get lucky tonight and get something right, but 
Uh, we're praying because we really do believe you're involved in our lives and um, we want your help to push us in the right direction in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a um, couple of things. Um, first of all, um, I do not believe in the Bible. It's a, it's a question some people ask. I believe in God, which is a very different thing. Uh, but for some people, the Bible has become inseparable from God, and therefore what mo- many people finish up defending is the print of Scripture rather than the character of God. I'm more interested in the character and the nature of God than I am the text and the print of Scripture. Now, what we're trying to do is marry them as far as possible or even use the negatives to, to project us towards the character and nature of God. So none of it is without um, purpose. I said last week, I believe the Bible is inspired. Um, I, when we finish talking about what we're talking about, it'd be very difficult to say it's infallible and inerrant in the way that some people mean it. And actually, it doesn't matter. That, that's the problem. We're fighting over stuff that doesn't matter. Uh, if it is the... If it is God-breathed, Scripture is God-breathed, there's a life in it that is not dependent upon this because that's all to do with the text, okay? It's all to do with what's been written. But beyond what is written, that's what I've said to you before and it's very important to remember. Uh, John didn't write, in the beginning was the Bible and the Bible was with God and the Bible was God and without the Bible nothing was made that has been made and the Bible became flesh. It says the Word became flesh. So we have to put this book in its rightful place, which is very precious and to me very sacred, Um, but we must not let it um, affect what I'll write. Just one word on it. I don't know how much we'll write on here today, but it must not let our need to defend words spoil what comes from here, which is the, see if I can write this, the trajectory what is the trajectory of Scripture? What, what actually, beyond all the texts and the stories and the incidents and the recordings, what is it trying to say? What is it trying to bring into our lives? If we can understand that, this becomes less important, that remains in place, that we believe it is inspired, and what hopefully it brings us to is uh, what Jesus talked about, which is that we see the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. So... Um, Important step in this tonight. I think Chris has done a tremendous job uh, in her two sessions and I greatly appreciate the amount of time she's put into researching so many of these things which you're free to go and pursue them and chase them yourself. But actually these are very true and very important but things I was never told. So I was unaware of what was influencing um, the bent of things that I was reading. So um, I want to... Uh, highlight to you tonight, first of all, uh, the problem that we face and the conflict that we have. If, and again, this I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify this phrase um, in a little bit, but if the God of the Old Testament and the God of Jesus are one and the same, we do have a problem, okay? And we can duck and hide and bob and weave, but actually that doesn't wash with people who are are taking a critical look at what we say about God, about the Bible, about the gospel. They want to know why. How come this God of the Old Testament somehow is the God of Jesus? They they seem like two different people. 
I'm going to propose to you that in many ways they are, okay? Um, but the God of Jesus is there in all of this. But it's not all the God of Jesus. Okay, let, let me run you through it. Okay, let me just give you a, a sample, just a sample of scriptures. There are many, many more. I'm going to read you some. doesn't matter if, if they don't go on the screen. Just, just catch this. Numbers 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Okay, fair enough. <clears throat> then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. And they completely destroyed them and their towns. That's what, how it's written. Verse 6 of the same chapter. Then the Lord, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they bit the people and many Israelites died. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Seven nations larger and stronger than you, which is a critical point in how this is written. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That, that was the reason I was given for not going to the pictures and all that kind of stuff when I, was, when I was growing up. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you, which is why I never went to the cinema, because I thought, if Jesus comes now, I'm, I'm toast. That's me done. Uh, this is what you are to do to them. Okay, This is their impression of what of God speaking to them. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now that, that last little verse there gives you some indication why the bent of some of this writing occurs. Nobody's saying they weren't special. Nobody was saying that God was not using them as the vehicle to bring the Christ to us and, and be the bearer of the word. But how they then embrace that is very interesting. Deuteronomy 20. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make that's if you offer them peace, turn them into, turn them into slaves. Okay? Put them under cruel bondage. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to the city, and when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put, the, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. 
However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes completely destroy them. Joshua 11 verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally. That's a bit sneaky, isn't it? I'll make you attack me so that when you attack me, I'll destroy you. And it'll look like it's okay because you attacked me. Listen to this. So that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Deuteronomy 2.34. At that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them. Men, women and children. We left no survivors. Deuteronomy 3. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army, and we struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time we took all his cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them. The whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan, all these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villagers. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sion, king of Eshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from their cities we carried off for ourselves. Okay, do you kind of get the, get the picture here? Okay. Now let's take a leap into Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard it was said... This is Jesus talking. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. But be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that, of course, is not perfection as we understand moral behavior. That's if you want to express the perfection of your Father, you love your enemies. You do for them what they do not deserve. Not utterly destroy the men, women, and children and steal their cattle and rape their women and whatever. Luke 6, verse 27, similar. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. 
then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Right, what is he? Kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. Matthew 9, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. One more half verse, James chapter 2, verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think you get the drift here. See, I, I believe the Bible is inspired, but not inerrant or infallible, to accept those things, that it's inerrant and infallible, I would have to accept that God did issue instruction to commit genocide on a huge scale. If it's inerrant and infallible, it was God who issued the instructions to commit genocide on a huge scale. So we then pose with the question, should all the Bible be interpreted as the literally accurate account of event and spirit. See, you don't even believe that in life and people who say they believe that don't believe that in life. For example, what's the literalist point on view? If I said to you, I enjoyed the sunrise this morning, how many of you'd say we've enjoyed sunrises? The truth is you've never enjoyed a sunrise ever in your life because the sun doesn't rise. Literally, it does, but factually, it doesn't. The earth is moving. We have no conscious awareness of the movement of the earth, but what we witness, if we express that literally, is wrong. Okay? The sun does not rise and has never risen. It is a metaphorical event that we see because the earth is moving. So, I'm trying to use a simple illustration like that to show you that if we literally look at some of these things, we can make the same mistake about who said what to whom and what they were supposed to do because what we missed was something I I, I wrote here. And I don't mean this wickedly, uh, but it's just true, agenda, okay? Agenda. Nations bigger and stronger than us. In those days, in that culture, that meant that your access to resources, your name before other nations, um, the level of threat that you would experience was affected by where you sat in the pecking order. And so we have little Israel, the least of the least, called by God, I absolutely believe. Chosen by him, I believe. uh, Partly because of the fact that they were the least. And they were the smallest. But what happens then as the story unfolds, we have to be really careful that we don't make the same mistake about that as we do about the sunrise. So the question is, how do we reconcile that which is considered scripture with these evident conflicts? 
because there are evident conflicts. I would say that the question we need to ask is, what was the Bible meant to be? Okay, What was it meant to be? What was the purpose? What was the trajectory? Was it meant to be a literal account of, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people and some things in the New Testament which we'll talk to later? Is that what it was meant to be? Because if it is, that's when we get into this problem of having to accept things that are in conflict, evident conflict, with what is going to occur later when we get the wonderful story of the Word made flesh. So, so um, we ask that question, what is the, was the Bible meant to be? Not just what qualifies as scripture and what should be included as sacred text. So the problem is, uh, the argument began to spring uh, from, with the, with the, let's call it the Hebrew Bible before the, 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 the Septuagint, which was the, which was the Greek version of of the construct of the Hebrew Bible. So they had their own little council to decide what was going in there. And then this, 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 um, this Bible, the Septuagint, this, 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 um, this gathering of books that they considered were the correct books for the Old Testament were put together. Now, there is another problem with that because um, uh, sometime later than that, about 700 years later than that, uh, there was another Hebrew version put together, which, which, which most of our Bibles were, were based upon, which was called the Masoretic Text. The problem is that um, there is a conflict with those because the conflict between Septuagint and Masoretic is that one group, the later group, were desperately trying to rewrite any scripture that made it look like Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. That's a conversation for another day. So... It's not just that we are saying in one area this has been affected, but in all areas where scripture, use that term loosely, has been brought together, agenda has played a major part. And so definitely in the recording of events in the Hebrew scriptures that we know as the Old Testament, without a shadow of a doubt, I would say, and I don't feel that I'm going to be struck by a lightning bolt and disappearing smoke, Without a shadow of a doubt, um, there are expressions in there which were the construct of the situation that people were in and the way they would describe it, taking into account the cultural environment, what was happening in their own minds, who they desired to be. In all that, there is God, but that's the issue, you see. That's the trajectory, that's the purpose. Where is God in all of that? He's there. The problem is when you take literally, you lose God because then you have to allow God to be what those people said he was. So you have to allow your God to be the murderer of women and children who we would call innocents. Oh, well, they weren't innocent because they were part of a pagan nation. Okay, try that now. Try going and wiping out villages and towns because they are pagan and don't see it how you see it. Don't believe in the God that you would... We, we would have a different view because now in Jesus we would say, no, our job is not to utterly destroy them so that they don't infect us. Our job is to bless them and love them so that we can infect them 
with, with the revelation of the word from heaven. So we have to wrestle with this, but you will encounter people who will want to burn you at the stake for suggesting that how those things were written were influenced by the people's viewpoint of the day. And Israel's rising, rising reputation in what was a, a tribal militaristic world, okay? Now, I can't blame them because, you know, it's all right us looking back and saying, we'd have never done that. We'd have probably fallen into exactly the same trap because lives were on the line, futures were on the line. It, it was a different world. But we have to take into account that, that, that this is it. So, um, within this Old Testament, and then, of course, coming, coming into the early church and all the conflicts over what should be included as, as, as text in, in what we know as the, the New Testament and the various councils that met together, uh, 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 the first ones about, about doctrine, so they were actually to create the creeds, what we know as the creeds, okay, the, the forms of belief. And uh, springing out of that, we eventually come um, to, to a, um, uh, uh, a decision about what should be included, what books should be included in the Bible. Now, what's interesting is there are some differences in that viewpoint between uh, Catholics and Protestants, and there are differences in viewpoint between Eastern and Western church. Now, we have a, a reasonably consistent acceptance of what we, what we know as the, these 27 books of the New Testament, but it's not, it's not totally accepted, but only those 27, but we, we have accepted those. I'm happy with that. For me, that's, like, that's enough material for me to get a hold of and say, yeah, I get it. I get the trajectory. Another 27 books wouldn't help me anymore because it's just going to give someone else's story of the same thing. So the issue is, we've got plenty there to go with, and it's good stuff, just like we've got plenty here with the 39 there to go with if you're looking for the trajectory. The problem is that the emphasis shifted to creeds and, and, um, uh, and canon. Creeds and canon. The canon meaning the measuring rod, the, 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 the stick by which you measure it. The problem is once we shifted to creeds and canon, okay, um, the, the, the whole thing became then... Defending the creed, well, this is what we believe, this is what you have to believe, and this is how you have to believe it. And I've said to you the last two weeks that Chris has spoken that then we find what arises within the church, not outside the church, but within the church, persecution from the church, on the church. Um, and that's not just a, you know, a Catholic Church of Rome argument, because the same things happened throughout uh, throughout history also in what became the emerging Protestant movement from Martin Luther in 1517 and John Calvin and, and Theodore Betzer and all of that. Um, sometimes the, what was done was, was, um, was a verbal, it, it wasn't necessarily physical but it was as bad as physical because you were going to be put out of the fellowship. Uh, people were not going to want to associate with you. So so we missed the point because then the argument didn't really become what's the trajectory of Scripture. It became what makes it up and we must defend that and what then are the creeds and beliefs that we have to fight over. And so what has happened is the church has fought over those things now for 1900 years. Okay? 
Um, it started within the first century after Jesus. This all began to emerge by, 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 uh, by 350 into the 4th century. Um, we've got all the stuff going on, then you're into the formation of the, the Church of Rome. Of course, you know, Chris mentioned about it became uh, Bible, became Holy Bible, became Sacred Scriptures, and it became not just the Church, but the Church of Rome, then it became the Holy Roman Church. Um, and of course, all that stuff that in one direction went to papalism, because now we have to exert an authority to make sure that everybody believes and accepts what we told them they have to believe and accept. So to some degree, the soul of this emerging thing was, was ripped out. So there's lots more we could say about that, but, 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 but what I want to do is, is move that on. So, so um, you also have to know that the journey to canonize Scripture, you know, the canon of Scripture, decide which books are going in, um, was not just you know, a bunch of guys sat down one day and said, uh, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. Um, it actually was not simple and it was not straightforward. We might talk about that in another session. It, was, it had great conflict within it and actually went on really over more than 150 years was this, this whole conflict. Um, uh, and I'll explain why some of that was happening in a moment. Um, so the exa an example of the kind of stuff that was going on, okay? Let me read you this. The plain fact of the matter is that the canon of the Bible was not settled in the first years of the church. It was settled only after repeated and perhaps heated discussions and the final listing was determined by Catholic bishops. This is an inescapable fact no matter how many people wish to escape from it. Truth is that the biblical canon is far less certain than most believe. Furthermore, Christians have through the centuries been influenced by works outside of whatever biblical canons they observe. In particular, the writings of the church fathers had a tremendous effect on the development of Christian tradition and doctrine. Also simple Christian legends, not written down until long after they'd been passed around, affected Christian tradition. Quite simply, the Bible is not the sole originator of Christian belief. Right. That's very important to catch that. This whole thing about where well, we just believe the Bible. I'm sorry, but if we really get down to the nitty gritty, we would find the Bible is not the sole originator of Christian belief, no matter which books one places within it. Because that wasn't the point for the Bible to be the sole originator and the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. And we saw him full of grace and truth, okay? So that was not meant to be just the source. In many ways, therefore, wrangling over the Bible's contents is a tempest in a teacup. In other words, it's the wrong battle, okay? Now, thank God for people who took the time to uncover, wrestle, translate, introduce, and say, we present, we present to you these writings from the Old Testament. We'll try and be as accurate as we can. We might influence them because now we have an agenda. Now, okay, this is where, let me just throw this in. Uh, when, I, when I study, I have four main Bibles I like to use. Uh, no, three. Sorry, nay, three. 
Um, New International Version preferred the 1984 to the 2000. Um, the New King James, because it's taken out the these and thous and Wilston. Uh, and the other one that I, oh, there are four. Yeah, the other one I like to use is the New American Standard. Now, the reason I use that, I hate to have to use it because it just polishes the ego of my American friends. Uh, it is a really good um, translation that lacks some of the interference influences that, for example, the King James had. Now you think, well, King James is scripture. Yeah, but uh, first of all, the King James didn't go all the way back to the original. It used a previous version to do its translation called the Bishop's Bible. So it was translating from a translation. Yes, they were referring to the, the Greek and Hebrew text, but, but that wasn't the sole source of the translation. And uh, dear old King Jimmy, um, he, he realized there's a lot of risk now. If, if people were going to read this thing, which they hadn't remember, so, so we're now 1611, uh, 1517 the Reformation begins, and uh, Luther produces a, a German Bible, which, if you read his Bible, is very Lutheran. If you don't know what that means, it's because you're not a Lutheran. But if you read it, it's very Lutheran, okay? Um, so coming out of that, of course, the Bible is now starting to become commonplace. Previous to that, prior to that, it was in Latin. Because the church had developed to the point where your only access to God was through the priest, and only the priest could interpret for you what the Bible said and meant. You couldn't read it. He would tell you what it said, and then he would tell you what it meant, and that was our only access. So why would we doubt these men of the cloth, especially when now we had been introduced to something called apostolic succession, which was that the Pope is a direct descendant of Peter. How that ever was figured out, I've like, well, you know, I know a little bit about biology and... That just doesn't add up. Um, and, and of course, from that, you know, the whole thing of, of, of people called to ministry was not just a, you know, God touched my heart and I want to serve people. It was like you had such a mandate from God that if anybody opposed you, we'll be tied to them. It became an authority structure. Um, and so as we bring that system through, we're all terrified to not do what the priest said because the other killer blow was... Now we had no access to scriptures. Whatever the priest told us about heaven and hell and good and bad and the ways of God was what, all that we knew. So needless to say, the great weapon of the church was hell. You know, you, you, you don't get baptized into the church, it's hell. You don't fulfill the ways of the church, it's hell. If we say you're a heretic and you don't repent fully and do your penance, it's hell. So everything was, was, was bound. Now, remember in, in, in an ancient world where still mysticism, we didn't have internet, we've got no TV, we've got no radio, we've got no newspapers, we've got no printed materials for most of that time, and we've still got legends of dragons and unicorns and, and monsters and... We, we, unicorn. A great fear of the unknown because there was lots of unknown. You know, your, your knowledge, if you were just a commoner, was your village. That was the world. That was the world. That was the world. And when people came from outside with stories of daring do, it was amazing. You know, that's why everybody sat around the campfire. So out there was this thing 
that we didn't know a lot about. You know, it was, it was a, a very strange... So, so I want you to bear that in mind, that in that kind of atmosphere, the, this emerging Christianity brought a lot of superstition and a lot of intimidation. So now it became an issue of control. You were baptized into the church. It was no longer an issue of just a personal understanding, revelation, walking with God, having, you didn't have your view. So all this is going on. And then dear old King James, um, he instructed his translators that there must, in no way, must the translation that they do undermine the authority of the king or of the church. Because we were going to get you two ways. First of all, the king is put in place by God. So to not obey the king in any way is to not obey God. That's a pretty strong motivator. And to not obey God, what happened? You were going to burn in hell. Because we'd now come from Dante's medieval images of fires. And, and uh, of course, then the other thing was, and it must not undermine the authority of the church. Now, of course, um, of course that... That a lot was coming from dear old Henry VIII deciding to be the head of the Church of England, so we wanted the king and the church equally to have power. But it was also a Catholic uh, approach as well. In that, it was you must not undermine the authority of the Pope because he is the vicar of God in the earth, and therefore you must not undermine the authority of Mother Church. Okay, So we've got you, okay? Anything against the church or the king. Now, the problem is that many of the scriptures that manipulate that process are mistranslations because they were told to translate it in a way. Now, you say, well, why did they do it? Well, okay, in those days, 1611, okay, let's get back into the dear old 1600s and around the 1500s because the Geneva Bible was the middle of the 1500s. Um, you're really going to tell the king, can't do that, king. Well, first of all, because you believe as well that the king is put there by God and to oppose the king is to oppose God. And if the king says this is what the church must do, you're opposing the church. So you're not going to turn around as a translator and say, no, king, I'm sorry, I ain't going to do that. Are you? So a lot of our understanding then of, of pressured authority in the church comes from a manipulation just the same as what Chris was talking about of what the priests wanted to get over to you about who was in and who was out and why you didn't qualify and why you needed them and all this stuff going on still, still carries on. Now, I said that because um, the New International Version is an evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal translation. And I can tell, because I've always grown up in evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal circles. And uh, I've said to you many times when I've said this verse is a disaster in this translation, is because that influence comes to bear. Now again, I, I can't blame the translators because we all come from somewhere and are somewhere and we have a way of thinking, but for us not to believe that that's going to influence and affect the final product is foolishness, which is one of my reasons for saying, yeah, inspired, but every version, every version. New American Standard's pretty, pretty good on its um, translation. New King James is just saying what the old King James said, but in nicer language. And the other one I like to use is the message, um, simply because it's very down-to-earth transliteration of the, um, of the text. Um, you know, anyway. Um, so, um, the issue is that, that, that 
that the contents, therefore, is not what we're arguing over. Everything has an influence to it. Now, I would like to be able to say to you that everything I say to you is without agenda. But it very evidently is, because I'm human, uh, I'm on a journey, I've come to certain thoughts and conclusions. So, of course, what I'm going to pour into you in interpretation is going to reflect that, which is why we have to set people free again, because what we were talking about was the fact that you could only do what the priest said in church and this was the threat. We're now saying to you, here's information. Here's what we think about this information. Um, we want you to follow the trajectory and find God in all of this. And realize that within this, it's like digging for gold. There's gold in them there hills, okay? But you've got to find it. So, um, so, in researching these things, one uncovers truths like this. Nestorianism, now don't worry about what Nestorianism was, okay? Became a distinct sect following the Nestorian schism. Beginning in the 430s, Nestorius had come under fire from Western theologians. Most notably, Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril. Oh. I know you never thought there was a Cyril, did you? In the... He was considered to be one of the early, early church fathers. But listen to this. Cyril had both... <laughs> Shut up, you. Cyril, I know it is funny, isn't it? It's just wrong for the time, isn't it? It's just it's a bit like my, my, my mother's father was called Alfred Henry Cornelius. I mean, you just wouldn't call a kid that now, would you? Uh, Cyril had both theological and political reasons for attacking Nestorius. Now, he's a major bishop, a leading bishop in the church of that time. On top of feeling that Nestorianism was an error against true belief, which is entitled to feel, he also wanted to denigrate the head of a competing patriarch. So when you look at how Cyril dealt with Nestorian, regardless of whether you believe what Nestorian was promoting or not, you can clearly see that within that, there were theological and political reasons for attacking him, and also the need to denigrate him because it was a competing patriarchy. Okay? Power struggles. Just how much was the, pro um, uh, just how much was the process not only of deciding what should be scripture, but also the formation of creeds affected by these very same things. Okay. So are we, are we clear on that? We got that. Okay. So, a noun, there's a noun, and the noun is heresiarch. Okay. H E R E S I A R C H. Heresiarch. Which is used to refer to both the originator of a heretical doctrine and the founder of a sect that sustains such a doctrine. So if you were considered to have a heretical doctrine and also created a group around that, it was known as a heresiarch, okay? Now, why did I tell you that? Because according to Catholic doctrine, Martin Luther was one, and John Calvin was one. So the very people that we have our... Uh, foundation of 
evangelical understanding of salvation through faith and not because we pay to the church, we don't buy our way out of hell, that Christ is the way, all of that that came to us from men like Martin Luther and from John Calvin, um, uh, they were classed by the Catholics as schismatics, which means that they created schism. They were dividers of the church. So the people that, that we believe unified the whole process of what we would commonly know as evangelical thought were considered by the Catholics to be tearing apart the church. Okay? And also that they were originators of heretical doctrine. So, so to the Catholics, all this has grown up. To the Catholics by then, Martin Luther, he's a heretic. He's preaching heretical doctrine, but preaching some of the stuff that we would believe in today. So what I'm trying to show you is that there is no consistency of this lovely thing when you get into this arena. We all just love Jesus and, and we all just love God and, and we found God and God is amazing and Jesus is wonderful. You've got this, you've got this hodgepodge of inter, intermangled thoughts and opinions and agendas and stuff which does not leave our scriptures unaffected okay now God was in all that there is a thread through all that and the thread is not Catholics were wrong Protestants were right the thread is where do we find the Abba of Jesus where do we see this kindness this love this generosity of spirit this mercy where do we see that shining through that Jesus revealed to us one thing that we do know through looking at a broad range of characters in the developing early church is that many of them wrestled with the issues that we're addressing, particularly regarding the nature of God and the nature of man, the nature of the God-man. All of these issues that we are trying to wrestle with, they were wrestling with. The thing is, the ones that wouldn't toe the line were all called heretics. They were all schismatics. They were all heresy arch. Okay? Because they dared to ask these questions. And I'm going to talk about um, one of those tonight. Okay? His name is Marcion of Sinope. It's a wonderful name. Let's write him up here. Mar. Marcion of what is? Is he really? Yeah, because he's not a Martian, is he? If I put a T in there, they probably thought he was a Martian. What is? No, it isn't. No, that's one each. Now, I've picked, there's lots of characters we could look at in the early church. Um, uh, and the ones I invariably find myself drawn to are invariably the ones who finished up being called heretics. So, um, but I'm drawn to them because of the questions that they ask. Now, just as we've talked about questions are uncomfortable in, in the wider church, all the way back, questions were uncomfortable. Now, go all the way back past Jesus and you get the same thing in the Hebrew culture. Okay? You don't question certain things, okay? So, so um, Marcion of, of Sinope, or Sinope, whichever you like. Sinope sounds more exotic. 
Uh, let, let, let me say a couple of things about him because it's important and you'll see why in a moment. He, he was, this is, so this is, this is 85 AD to 160. So this guy is around still at the time of John the Apostle and, and Paul. This guy's emerging out of that. He's born when these guys are still alive, okay? And uh, so he, he is a connection with a very early expression of, of Christianity, which remember, the earliest expressions were as much verbal as they were written, because the other interesting thing is that no Old Testament writer ever set out to write his book thinking, one day this will be Holy Scripture. He's just trying to help. Just trying to help. Um, nor, nor would they have imagined the, the intensity with which we would pour over their words and examine their words so, and apply them. So for an ancient writer to say, oh, we, this, they, they, we moved into this land and this village we were opposing, so we killed them. Back then it was like, whoa, great, fantastic, you know, yeah, have another drink, let's smoke the peace pipe, whatever. Um, it was no big deal back then because you were writing how things were written. This is how you write about op opposition and enemies and advancement. This is how you write about it. And to some degree, I believe, personally, um, that writers were caught up in that style. Okay? And again, you say, well, but wasn't it God who was making them write it? Well, that's why I read the things at the beginning. If it was God who was making them write it, we got a big problem because that's not the God of Jesus. It can't be the God of Jesus. They're saying two different things. He's a schizophrenic. Now, I believe it was the God of David. I believe the God of Abraham. And uh, Jacob got a little taste of it, and Isaac got a little taste of it. And many of these prophets got a little taste of it. Within all of that culture, there's this thread that you begin to see the God who Jesus talked about. Okay, But... Um, but in, 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 in all of this then, this, this, this guy's around at that, that time. So he was an important leader in early Christianity. Um, his theology rejected the deity described in the Hebrew Scriptures. So now we've just come, Jesus has not long been gone. You know, about, about, about 30 AD, we've got the death of Jesus. The church is growing. Jerusalem is raised to the ground in AD 70. We're only just not far past that, walking on now. So it's still coming very much from that Jerusalem church motivation. Paul's started his ministry. Paul's, Paul's done a lot of his stuff by the time Marcion comes along. But he, he, he concluded that many of the... He concluded, um, sorry, that... He, that the deity described in the Hebrew Scriptures and in distinction affirmed the Father of Christ as the true God. Right? So this is Marcion of Sinope, if you like Sinope. Read that again. His theology rejected the deity described in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, I personally think he was that was incorrect. There are several things about him I would with our knowledge, because remember, he didn't have Tinternet to go looking what everybody else was saying, that the guys, he's looking at what's happening, he's listening to the message, he's assessing things, he's thinking, hang on a minute, this doesn't add up. Um, and uh, um, 
So he actually rejected the deity. Now, I believe there is a deity in Hebrew scriptures which, which is the Abba of Jesus, but, but not all the expressions of God in the Hebrew scriptures are that God. So this, this is basically where he was. Um, and he affirmed the Father of Jesus as the true God. The church fathers denounced Marcion and he chose to separate himself from the proto-Orthodox church. He published the earliest extant fixed collection of New Testament books. So they got their skates on because they didn't like Marcion. Marcion put together the first collection of books, the first canon, and they thought, well, we hate Marcion and we don't like what he believes, so we're going to have to create a canon apart from Marcion, of which some of Marcion's stuff would be in. But there was a competitiveness, not just, a, not just always a very sweet, holy competitiveness. It was like, well, we're not letting him get away with that. Uh, making him an important figure in the development of the New Testament canon. Study of the Hebrew scriptures, along with received writings circulated in the nascent church, led Marcion to conclude that many of the teachings of Jesus were incompatible with the actions of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible. I, I would have to agree with him, categorically. Marcion responded by developing a ditheistic system of belief around the year 144. Now, this is where I don't agree with him. This notion of two gods, a higher transcendent one, and a lower world creator and ruler, allowed Marcion to reconcile his perceived contradictions between Christian Old Covenant theology and the gospel message proclaimed by the New Testament. Now, can you see that his, his question was good? Uh, many of his conclusions were correct, but of course, without the access we have to so much knowledge and instruction, he's having to kind of figure this out. Now, he concluded that there were, were two, two strong gods and then there, was a, there was a, and then there was a lesser group. So he concluded there were three levels of God. Um, the big God, uh, and then God the creator who created being obedient to God, and then lesser gods under that of which Jesus and angels would be, would be part of that process. Now, I'm thinking, how the heck did you get there? You know, but see, for me, that's not a problem because what I'm looking at, okay, that's where he got to and it's good to read that. I, I don't hang with his journey of how he got there, but I do hang with his question and I do hang with the conflict of was the Hebrew God that he was wrestling with really the one who Jesus promoted? And if so, how was he going to wrestle this to find within that this Abba of Jesus? So according to Marcion, they got, incidentally, let me just throw in at this point, if you know much about Mormonism, you can track a very similar process of thought leading to what became Mormon belief as, as happened with guys like Marcion, which I find quite fascinating uh, that, that from the right questions, those conclusions can come. So well, the issue, I suppose, is how can we asking the right questions stay on the right trajectory, which is what we're trying to wrestle with. According to Marcion... The God of the Old Testament, who he called the Demiurge, um, which means, that all that means is the creator of a material universe, is a jealous tribal deity of the Jews, whose law represents legalistic reciprocal justice and who punishes mankind for its sins through suffering and death. Now, I, I can't 
contend with if you if you look from a certain angle I can't contend with that conclusion he then says contrastingly the God that Jesus professed is an altogether different being a universal God of compassion and love who looks upon humanity with benevolence and mercy Marcion also produced his antithesis that was his one written project contrasting the demiurge of the Old Testament, the creator God of the Old Testament, with the heavenly father of the New Testament. Now, I, I, it's pretty good, pretty good thing to get a grip on that, isn't it? How does all that fit together? Marcion held Jesus to be the son of the heavenly father, and this is where I, I don't agree with him here, but understood the incarnation in a docetic manner which means that Jesus' body was only an imitation of a material body. So he started getting, for me, a bit woo, a bit way out there somewhere. Um, so Jesus' body was only an imitation of a material body and consequently denied Jesus' physical and bodily birth, death, and resurrection. So I'm like, no, I, how you got there, Mr. Marcion, from, from what you were asking, I'm not sure, but I can't be overcritical because, again, all I have to do is go on Google and I can find a million times more information than you had. Um, I think he missed the boat, but his contribution to us was to understand there is a canon and we need to pull it together, but we need to understand the trajectory of that canon because we cannot reconcile this God of the Old Testament instructing people to destroy and kill and murder and possess and put into slavery with this God who Jesus then comes and presents where he loves the tax collector and he frees the woman caught in the act of adultery and he heals the leper and, and, and this, this one who, who by his own sacrifice destroys death, by his own willingness to submit to suffering breaks the power of suffering, a completely and totally different <laughs> spirit. So Marcion was the first to introduce an early Christian canon. His canon consisted of only 11 books grouped into two sections, uh, blah, 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 uh, who Marcion, uh, uh, a selection of 10 epistles of Paul the Apostle, also altered to fit his view, as were Luke, with parts removed that did not agree with his views. <laughs> See, it's still going on. Still go so dear old Marcion's asking all these questions, just very close to Paul and all those, but still because he has a viewpoint, he messes with Mark, openly messes with Mark, and he messes with, with Paul's writing anywhere where it conflicts with his views. But that has been fairly consistent, uh, and we could show you that not just with the New Testament, but the difference between Septuagint and Masoretic where the Masoretic rabbis decided, hey, we can't have in our Bible things that clearly tell people that Jesus was the Messiah, so they mess with things like Isaiah 53. They put a completely different translation on it. So you can't possibly say that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's been happening all the time, okay? So your question now is, okay, Anth, if that is true, are you messing with things to try and convince us? I might be, I don't know. I hope you have enough courage, like I'm saying about Marcy, and I liked his questions, but I didn't like where they took him. You have the same privilege to say, Chris, we like your questions. We're not quite sure we like where it's taken you, but we like your questions. And we balance each other in that way, because now instead of saying, well, we're just going to mess with the church so there's no possibility of questioning, we're trying to do the opposite and say, no, we can have open questioning about this. We can examine these things. 
Saul were, let's see, where were we? Uh, the gospel used by Marcion does not contain elements relating to Jesus' birth and childhood, although it does contain some elements of Judaism and material challenging Marcion dytheism. So, so he kind of, well, you get the picture. That all the way through, people are kind of amending this to make you do what we need. Okay, Marcion held that the Heavenly Father, the Father of Jesus Christ, was an utterly alien God. He had no part in making the world nor any connection with it. Now, he's gone so far with this difference of God that he said, well, in that case, God can't have made the world. You know, God can't have. So, so yeah, there is a danger in what we're doing. That's why our thing of the lab is about it's dangerous. There is a danger. And I think Marcion's a wonderful example of the danger. How ultimately, you can say, well, if there's a problem with this, the God who created the world, I don't believe in him, he's not. So we've got to invent another God. So, well, if Jesus had a father, that's a God above a God. And then if there are like angels and people less, then there's really three levels. You see how he, he could start thinking those things through in that process. Uh, so, uh, okay, the main points of Marcion's teaching were the rejection of the Old Testament, which I don't necessarily do, a distinction between the supreme God of goodness and an inferior God of justice, who was the creator and God of the Jews. So he has the inferior God of justice who was the creator and God of the Jews, but not our God. He regarded Christ as the messenger of the supreme God. That's all this is coming together. Um, orthodoxy had not declared for any part as yet, uh, which means that there was no orthodox Christian belief up to this point. Nothing that everybody could say, this is it. The the creeds hadn't yet been formed, okay? Um, and the Marcionites' view had then as good a chance as any other of becoming the universal one. What then was the secret of Marcion's success? As already pointed out, it was the same as that of the success of modern criticism as applied to the problem of the New Old Testament. Uh, in other words, because Marcion was prepared to embrace this conflict, that's what gave him a lot of following, a lot of, a lot of success in what he was doing. Uh, Marcion condemned the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, as a wayward, deceptive, false God. Um, I'll let Chris talk about that and she does the Yahweh and what that means. Uh, Marcion formulated a protest which must have already declared itself in the hearts of thousands of the more enlightened in the Christian name. Or in other words, Marcion was simply an expression of the struggle that many people coming into this Christian faith were already having. Okay? As for the New Testament, in Marcion's time, the idea of a canon was not yet or was only just being thought of. Marcion too had an idea of a canon, but it was the antipodes of the views which afterwards became the basis of the orthodox canon. The Christ had preached a universal doctrine, a new revelation of the good God, the Father over all, they who tried to graft this onto Judaism, the imperfect creed of one small nation, were in grievous error and had totally misunderstood the teaching of Christ. Let me read that again, because it's important. The Christ had preached a universal doctrine, a new revelation of the good God the Father over all. They who tried to graft this onto Judaism, the imperfect creed of one small nation, 
Now, we're not saying the God who was through it all. We're saying that why we have all those scriptures of domination and that's the creed of one small nation, the imperfect creed, were in grievous error and had totally misunderstood the teaching of Christ. So this brings us to an important point that one of the great struggles when we come over into the New Testament was the fact that people were trying to graft this revelation of God through Jesus onto Judaism. And it can't be done, because it's not. I, I have a great problem with the term some of you will have hear, heard about the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Judeo-Christian tradition is all those problems we've talked about, making creeds and canons that we then have to defend and bring you under authority and have priests and kings and mess with Bibles and things. That's Judeo-Christian because it tries to take what was literal in the Old Testament and how that presented God and bolt Jesus onto that. So you get silly statements like, well, you know, what about that? Well, God knew what he was doing because God is wise. Even had one guy who wrote a book, I won't tell you his name, who was asked about, you know, the, the, the uh, complete destruction of a town in Scripture and all the women and children. He said, well, there were probably only 2,000 of them. There were probably only 2,000 of them. So in that sense, they were completely dispensable. It wasn't like a major world affair. There were probably only... It's like, what? What are you... Remember our thing, everyone is precious. Every person is precious. Every life is precious. And every life is precious to God. And so we have this issue that when Christianity, which again, you know the term, tries to bolt itself on to Judaism, that's when we have a huge problem. Okay? So it is separate to but born out of. Okay? So this thing that Jesus brought us is separate to, but born out of. It comes out of the Hebrew story. It comes out of Jewish history. It comes through Jesus, a Jew. It comes out of that root, but that's because all the time the trajectory is saying, look, here's what's going to happen. And then we hit Abraham, and he says, there's going to be a great nation come out of you. And Christ was the seed of Abraham. Christ was the seed and we're Christ. And we have this trajectory that comes through that, that we come out of that. That is the source from which we come out of. But we are not brought into a bolt-on version of that. So, dear old Marcion was excommunicated and declared a heretic. Some of his ideas may have been crazy to me. But my point is, he was wrestling with the issues others in the church did not want to wrestle with that needed wrestling with. And that's what we're attempting to do. So God is in control. Just trust God. He knows what he's doing. Uh, if you're the child in the village getting slaughtered with the sword for nothing you've ever done, that's not a very good message, is it? So is the God of the Old Testament the God of Jesus? Is the God of the Old Testament as recorded the God of creation, the God of life? Are we actually talking about a God that emerges if we see the scripture one way that is not the God of Jesus and is not the God of creation, but is actually the God of Judaism? Yes. When actually there is a God of creation 
And there is a God of this story who through it all and in spite of it all comes through and then boom, on the scene comes Jesus and said, you're just not getting this, are you? God looks like this, okay? In him was life and that life was the light of men, okay? The same light that came into the universe at the beginning that wasn't sun, moon and stars, it was the light of revelation. And in comes Jesus and says, listen, God looks like this. And so then the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Not scripture is, not the Old Testament prophets, not the Jewish nation, not the Hebrew story, but Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. So we have to say that then Jesus is the one through whom we filter our understanding, which gives us the right to say, there was another God turning up here, right? Another God was turning up here, but we don't think that within the text of what we know as the Bible, that was always the same God that we're talking about who created the world and from whom Jesus came. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so, just, just a couple more things. Are you okay for a few more minutes? Hermeneutics got nothing to do with a man called Herman. Hermeneutics is the science and art of Bible interpretation, which can be summed up by four key words. Observation, interpretation, evaluation, application. Okay, observation, what are the basic facts of the passage, such as the meaning of all the words. Interpretation, what did the author mean in his own historical setting, which is also very important. Evaluation, what does this passage mean in today's culture? Application, how can I apply what I've learned and how I live my life? But I would add a fifth. What were the influences prevailing and the things the people wanted to portray about themselves when the text was written? It's another very important point on hermeneutics. So let me give an illustration just to, to bring us to a close tonight. Um, an illustration of this and what happens in the interpretation and transfer of information, even in the Bible, that the Bible, the Bible exposes about itself. Okay, So I'm going to read you some verses and then make a comment before we're done. Okay, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians was Paul's first book. So Galatians is being written around about 40. AD, Galatians, the first, Paul's first book, the first letter of Paul. In essence, really, the first, James is portrayed to be potentially the first um, uh, oldest letter in the Bible, oldest book, and Galatians comes right after that. So, so we're talking very early on in, 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 in the development of this thing called the church. So he writes this from Rome to the Galatian people. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Do you know what the different gospel was? It was this thing now tagged on to Judaism. That's what the different gospel was. 
We're trying to integrate it with Judaism. We're trying to bolt it onto Judaism. That's what Paul's talking early in the development. Which really is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. They're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles. Okay, so that's the disciples and, you know, that were left and people in Jerusalem. Uh, before I w- was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. This was pretty, pretty detailed account. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Isn't it interesting that he has to put that in there? Hey. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. And then chapter one, uh, sorry, verse, verse one of the next chapter. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, um, which had this trajectory, but was not a bolt-on version of Judaism. Okay, that's where the problems come in here. Okay, Um, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for I fear that I was running or had run my race in vain, trying to do what we're doing. Let's let's bring this out and see where we're at with this. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. Slaves to what? Slaves to that Judaistic system of the Yahwistic God, right? That whole thing, okay? Uh, but we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As, far, as for those who seem to be important, whether they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked, was that we should continue to remember the poor. Okay. So this is, this is early book, 40 AD, Apostle Paul. All they asked, all they asked was that we remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now let's look at how this was written up in the book of Acts 10 to 12 years later. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas, this is Acts 15, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Okay? The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now, this would appear to be that visit that Paul said was 14 years after in Galatians. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Bolt this thing onto Judaism validate the God of our Hebrew belief system is what they were trying to do, okay? Um, after much discussion, the, uh, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Okay, so we, we, we we're okay, Peter's got this, the apostles have got this. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now this is the 10, 12 year later account from a different perspective of what Paul said. All they asked of us was to take care of the poor. Remember the poor. Here's what it's become now. Instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So why was there reason for doing it? Because from the earliest times, Moses has been preached in every city and from the earliest times, read in the synagogues on the Sabbath. What the flip has that got to do with anything other than we have to make sure that we retain our viewpoint of our history and our God, and we bolt this revelation of Jesus onto there, which then causes the confusion, confusion of the God of Jesus and the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, which then produces everything that Paul is wrestling with, of people saying, no, you can't just believe in Jesus, you've got to do this Jewish thing and that Jewish thing, and God won't be pleased unless, and you have to, we're getting into all this stuff going on here, and now it's gone, there may be very good things, food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, meat, strangled animals and blood. But what I'm trying to show you, it had grown into something else. Why? Because now the powerhouse of Jerusalem, challenged by the emerging powerhouse of the Gentile world, now either Paul's telling a lie, okay, 
These events are not the, either these events are not the same, which would be really strange, or the two sides have different recollections of the event, or by the time it's expressed and written up by the Jewish writers, it has taken on a particular bent of a requirement consistent with the Jewish version of the God image. Now, I know that Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, but Luke was writing it from his, from his, his assessment of and his, his uh, interrogation and his searching of what people were saying, and so we have a definite issue there that shows us that even in those scriptures, just remember the poor. That sounds about enough, doesn't it? We think, Paul, the way you're going, we just trust what God's doing in your heart. This is wonderful. Just remember the poor, and we are here. And then all this other stuff that comes in, it is unavoidable, which is why you have to get that there is a trajectory. And that trajectory has to bring us to the God of Jesus, not the God of Judaism, the God of Jesus. And it's not the God of Jesus we have to question to try and make Judaism okay. It's the God of Judaism we have to question to say, has that gone off somewhere because of the agenda of a nation? But still within that... He's God the creator, the God of Jesus. Now, as I've said to you, if we could track the Old Testament scriptures amidst all that horrible stuff of genocide and all that stuff, there are these amazing interactions of people like Abraham and Jacob in the desert and David who most certainly met the God of Jesus. Most definitely, it was the God of Jesus. And that their actions out of that were a manifestation of that. Just one little thing, for example. David's revelation of God made him have an open tent with the Ark of the Covenant that no one was supposed to see and touch, but made it available to everybody and filled the house with praise and worship in Jerusalem. It was called the Tabernacle or the Tent of David. That was not Judaistic. That was completely against the rules of all of this. Why? Because he met the God of Jesus, who was still there in all of this, revealing himself. So let's finish. So was the God of Jesus the God of the Old Testament? I would say it depends which God of the Old Testament do you mean. Okay, Which God of the Old Testament do you mean? Because the God of Jesus is there, but not everything you read about God in the Old Testament I don't believe is the God of Jesus. Is that okay? Because yes. this is the lab, isn't it? Awesome. Yeah. So take it, weigh it, yeah. let it sit in your spirit. You're also free to do research and check things out. It's all extremely interesting. I'm very comfortable, very challenged by what we are finding. And uh, our whole desire is that in all of this, that the glory of the Father is revealed through the expression of Jesus in our lives and we love what has happened we love how this has been delivered to us but we have that little responsibility now to uh, to say okay what are we looking for I'll tell you what we're looking for we're looking for the God of Jesus and wherever see the God of Jesus old or new that's who we follow that's who we believe that's where grace and mercy flows from that's where love of enemies and all that stuff finds its place in our hearts and begins to revolutionize our lives. So we bless you in Jesus' name, and we're done. Thanks for listening. 
You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.